0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry
1: Luce Foundation. We're on a trajectory, which is obviously not good. We're, we're on a trajectory toward climate catastrophe and toward sort of a racial and economic apartheid. That's kind of where we're heading, unless we intervene. Now, I actually think we are, as a species, very capable of rewiring ourselves. I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in other people. A Child of Privilege warns
0: about unsustainable income inequality and how it feeds racial resentment. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freutler. Collins, living in the working-class Boston neighborhood of Jamaica Plain, has spent a good deal of his life pondering the problems of rich and poor. Chuck's recent memoir, Born on Third Base, relates his story of growing up in an affluent family and being raised in the wealthy Detroit suburb of Bloomfield
1: Hills, home to many executives of the auto industry. My great-grandfather was a meatpacker Oscar Mayer, a German immigrant, uh, opened a a butcher shop in Chicago in 1886. The next generation grew it to become an even bigger company with a very successful jingle and brand and marketing. And the next generation took it The to... By the time I came along, the company had actually, by the time I was 21, the company sold to um, General Foods. Um, so it was no longer a family business as I came of age. But uh, it, the, the fact of our connection to that meant that there's a fair amount of wealth that flowed down to my generation...
0: Now, you've said that being raised in great wealth sometimes creates a kind of narcotic of privilege. Can you describe that?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things wealth does is it's a, sort of a disconnection drug. It it kind of keeps you uh, apart from others. Um, you know, I, I grew up, you know, not really knowing the struggles that most people experienced. Um, and then over time, as I became kind of painfully aware of the inequalities one of the ways I think you can cope with it is just to sort of numb out or disconnect or stay in sort of a, a bubble of privilege because I think to live in a society with extreme inequality and to ha- and to be sort of open hearted to that is 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 hard but Chuck decided to become an activist.
0: he coordinated a coalition of hundreds of organizations in Massachusetts concerned about affordable housing and maintaining a safety net for people who are vulnerable. He's lobbied to raise the minimum wage and promote greater fairness in our tax system. Back when Chuck was fresh out of college, he got a taste of how
1: people live at the margins. I got a job working with tenants who are trying to buy their apartment buildings and buy their mobile home parks. And that's where I really kind of had this very front row seat to how is it that these inequalities that were opening up in the 80s and 90s were really sort of affecting people in a very pocketbook way? And at the same time, I'm from this wealthy family and I'm surrounded by people with enormous wealth. So I also had a front row seat to wealth multiplying at the top, you know, just people saying, oh, my house just tripled in value and I just bought another property. And so I was sort of watching this sort of parallel trend of stagnant wages and growing wealth and how it was playing out in people's lives. And that troubled you? Yeah, I, I, first of all, I, I had wealth that had been given to me at the age of 21 and I it, it sort of doubled in about a four-year period through no effort of my own, no, no great investment savviness or, or labor on my own. So I just, on some level, I guess I felt like that's sort of wrong that I should have so much and that it should be doubling. And these people that I'm working with are struggling and taking on a second job and going into debt and just just trying to hold it together. And that it, It was clear, really, the myth about deservedness didn't work for me. You know, the story that, oh, your family worked harder, worked smarter, whatever, and these people didn't work as hard. You know, the sort of dominant myth that holds these inequalities in place just didn't work for me. So so it troubled me. And that class divide in America feels
0: like it has only intensified. This was on graphic display in the bruising, brutal presidential election campaign that pitted Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. It elicited anger and fear on both sides. President Barack Obama in the final year of his presidency. The one thing that gnaws on me uh, is the degree of uh, continued polarization. This has gotten worse uh, over the last several years. And I think that in those early months, my expectation was is that uh, we could pull uh, uh, the parties together a little more effectively.
1: A polarized politics is some is a reflection of a polarized economy. Chuck Collins, and actually, we've been here before. You know, when during times of great inequality and insecurity, uh, the United States has gone both progressive populist. You know, so you think of the Prairie Fire populists of the eighteen hundred, late eighteen hundreds, and nineteen hundred, pressing for populist reforms, the income tax. But it also goes regressive populist, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-newcomers, the rise of the KKK. So, um, you know, we're in one of those moments where we're so polarized economically, and it plays out in different ways. People go different ways with that. So that's just one thing. But I think that we're also—I think one of the huge challenges is we are living in this ecologically constrained world. So if we want to reduce inequality— we can't really use the same playbook that we used after World War II, although there's still a lot we can learn from the um, extract, burn, consume, get the kind of economy going, economic growth engine going. Um, we don't sort of have the, the ecological ability to do that now. We just can't extract and burn without any consequences anymore. Uh, so that's, that's clearly one of the challenges of this moment.
0: What are some better ways to discuss these challenges? Because the polarization
1: clearly is making things worse. These inequalities are underlying the racial wealth divide and the polarization there, and the experience that white working class people are feeling as they say, look, we've been left behind, we've been betrayed by this economy. Uh there's a s there's there's one story which I think is the sort of uh the scapegoating story, you know, that the the the, 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 the um insecurity that you're experiencing is is a result of new immigrants and people cutting in line in front of you and sort of a sense of unfairness. And I would just say that that what we're living through are are deeply systemic changes and that these inequalities are undermining the quality of life for everybody. Uh They're clearly affecting people of color in a very adverse way. They're affecting white working-class folks in rural communities and small towns. But I would argue where we're going is actually bad for even the wealthy, that these inequalities uh, undermine the quality of life for all of us. What role does the
0: human trait of empathy play in
1: allowing this conversation to move forward? Because it feels to me like it's quite stuck. I think it's a, I think it's a huge challenge right now. And, and, and Dave, you mentioned the anger and fear that people feel it's understandable. And it's, it makes it hard for us to scale the empathy wall, to understand what the experiences of other people are. So I'm encouraging wealthy people to sort of bring their full open heartedness to the, the struggles in our communities. Um, But, uh, you know, I also echo uh, the sociologist Arlie Hochschild, who wrote this fabulous book called Strangers in Their Own Land, sort of about um, people who are Tea Party members, supporters of Trump. What was their lived experience that brought them to that point? Uh, And she tells this deep story that, you know, people feel like they're waiting in a line. The line isn't moving. People are cutting in line in front of them. The liberals, the coastal liberals are sort of laughing at them, encouraging other people to cut in line. Donald Trump comes along and says, look, I see you. I see you out there standing in that line. And uh, these folks feel like uh, people on the eastern coasts uh, are looking down on them, think they're racists, that they're... And, And one of them said to me, you know, look, I'm not a racist. I actually work and live closer to people of color on a day-to-day basis than many of the you north northern liberals who call me a racist, uh, I just don't like it when people cut in line. So they've really believed that story that people have cut in line unfairly, and think about how you feel when you get cut in line. You know, so that's an interesting empathetic thing, which is, you know, let's understand that people feel like they're they've been waiting and they've been left behind and they feel somewhat betrayed by, you know the liberal elites, the Democratic Party, whoever. Now, so what does that mean? I think we have to get the line moving again. We have to learn each other's stories. You know, Meg Wheatley said, you can't hate anybody when you know their story. Mm. And because we're more residentially disconnected from each other, the more we have to sort of proactively learn each other's stories.
0: But a cloud hangs over attempts to promote greater understanding and harmony in America. The presence of bigotry has been with us from the beginning. When the first states were half slaveholding and half free. And over the course of American history, prejudice has sometimes softened and sometimes hardened,
1: but never yet dissolved. That strain of racism is our original sin. It is just wired into everything we do. Um, and I and um it is part of the way in which working class whites and people of color have historically been pitted against each other. I mean, the politics of scapegoating, and it's true of anti-Semitism or, you know, it's the oldest story in the book. It's There's economic insecurity. There's a powerful group of people who benefit from that. And they deflect the resentment toward more vulnerable people. So those people of color over there, they're the ones who are cutting in line. It's not that we're changing the tax code or funneling wealth to the top or rigging the rules of the economy to help the wealthy get more wealthy. It's those people of color, and they're they're the ones who cut in line. They're the ones who took your job. It's the Mexicans. It's the trade agreements who are are causing your suffering. And uh, that politics of deflection is, you know, unfortunately very, very powerful, and it plays on the sort of culture of white advantage that we live with. And it's a very well-worn path in American history. It's very well-worn, and it, it, uh, um, you know, and and again, I go back a hundred years ago. To, you know, I think in times of great inequality, that festers even more. Similar to anti-Semitism, you know, it was always in times of economic transition and insecurity when anti-Semitism historically rose up, and Jews were sort of focused on as the scapegoats. And I think it's very, in the U.S. context, it's often people of color and new immigrants who are the sort of deflection point.
0: Although there are echoes of the anti-Semitism as we
1: speak in the current political climate. Yeah, it's part of the past. So here it is, it's a resurgence. In times of greater equality, it goes underground. I mean, it's still there. It's sort of part of, but the resentments get stoked in these times of economic insecurity and transition uh, and upheaval, and uh, you know um, you know I think that one the way I think about it though is that as a white person uh, there 's something we can all immediately do, which is just start to understand the all the advantages that come, and this isn 't true for everybody I mean, if somebody's feeling economically deprived, but for many people say in the top half of the income ladder who are white, there's ways in which white advantage. Is part of our biography. It's part of our history. Um, Not necessarily being born on third base, but maybe second base, yeah, or, or first base, or or just that little lead off of home plate, or something. I don't know. But you know, I mean, and I tell the story of uh, you know after World War II, we we spent a lot of money as a society to put uh, to build a white middle class. You know, through first time homebuyer, first first you know Veterans Administration loans. One of my uncles got a, per, a loan. One percent, forty-year fixed-rate VA mortgage—you know, you could buy a lot of house with that today. You know, you could you could stretch your money. Um, that was a huge subsidy that helped build a white middle class. So a lot of white people got on the express train to wealth building. And a lot of people of color were sort of left behind for the train that never showed up. And that past shows up today in the present because our home ownership rates are. You know, whites have a 71% home ownership rate and blacks have a 41% home ownership rate. That 30% gap has been kind of constant for decades.
0: We're talking with Chuck Collins, author of Born on First Base and founder of United for a Fair Economy. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, The Common Good, and to obtain or download an audio copy, please visit humanmedia.org. Chuck Collins, his long quest for a society with a more level playing field is not just about politics. It's primarily about human beings making a connection with each other.
1: When I was growing up in a wealthy family, there wasn't a lot of um, interdependence. We didn't, we have to rely on anybody. That's part of the sort of having money sort of means you don't actually ask other people for help. You, You know, I don't ask my friend Bill to help me fix my car. I go to the car mechanic I pay for services but I don't sort of have an exchange or in well community is actually built on mutuality not on employees uh it's built on on showing up with your own needs and your own vulnerability and saying here I can help you with that and you can help me with this and that's the that is the the bonds that most working class communities and have to enable people to survive. People are constantly sort of helping each other. Um, I had the experience working with this mobile home park where uh, at the age of 26 and seeing them, this 30 mobile home park residents kind of put everything they had together on the table to help each other buy the park in a way, an experience of solidarity that I had never seen growing up. And I thought, I want some of that. A solidarity of need and mutual assistance. Exactly. Then, not the stiff arm of charity, distanced, but the actual mutuality. And uh, you know, we we our mutual aid muscles are incredibly out of shape for the most part. We, as, as particularly as people get live into this sort of experience of, of economic independence, I don't need anybody. I'm economically independent. And then all of a sudden you lose a job or you have a health issue or all of a sudden you need people. And you there isn't a web there. There isn't, like, people that are in the habit of helping each other. And that's, you know, that's that's kind of the one of the missing things. And I think that's one of the ways in which privilege disconnects people um, from each other. And there's a certain sadness in that. They're alone, you know, and I think that that... Uh, that's not how we're wired to be. I, I think we're really meant to be much more in sort of small extended family units and tribal units and just kind of in in a kind of community of mutuality. There's strength in numbers. Yeah. And I have that experience, you know, just in my own local religious congregation. I remember after the economic meltdown in 2008, uh, I don't know, you know, that October, a lot of people, a lot of us felt like, oh, my God, the, the sands are shifting. There's this sort of economic insecurities. I think some people are feeling that today. You know, Will I have my job in three months? And, and uh, as a congregation, we had never really sort of, we'd shared our, you know, <laughs> our spiritual lives, but we had never really had a conversation about our economic circumstances. And we just started to have these sort of circles, these conversations with each other. And it was like powerful. And then we started to realize, hey, we could help each other. Like we have things that each other needs. And I think it really wound people together in a more powerful way
0: like what kinds of things that each other needs
1: well uh you know uh you you can help me think about starting this this business that i've always wanted to start we we formed what we call a resilience circle or a, but it's you know it's just a, a group of people who commit to talk to each other and really share and and uh people came in with their budgets and said i i'm not making ends meet can can you help me think about how to you know cut my costs or increase my income or people had a business idea how can you help them network to do that uh some people just had chores and things that they needed help with that they couldn't afford to pay so we could barter with each other you know I'll rake your leaves and you can watch my kids and you know so i think we just had been out of practice of looking to one another to help us meet our most basic uh needs and not not having to go into the marketplace and pay money for things that we couldn't afford anymore so it was it was a it was a moment where we saw that how much we actually had. It was an abundance moment. Like, wow, look what we have together.
0: There's a movement afoot. It's it's now really worldwide. To cultivate an economy that sustains our communities, uh, as opposed to an extractive economy that drains our communities,
1: and I know that you've been very committed to that. Yeah, I mean, I, as as my own understanding of both the economic and ecological moment we're in grew. I I, I looked, I noticed this this global transition movement, which is. It's, it's a community, people at the local level looking at, asking the question, how can we build a local, healthy, resilient economy in the face of the changing economy and the changing energy situation? And so people who are looking at local food systems, producing energy, reducing energy consumption, building these kind of mutual aid networks, barter exchanges, uh, local businesses that are rooted in a community that are meeting real goods and, you know, the needs for local services and goods. In the neighborhood I live in, which is just one neighborhood of which there are, I think I looked, there are 120 of these transition communities in the United States, uh, several thousand globally, uh, that is looking at, you know, we have a, 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 a business incubator for kind of new economy businesses, food businesses, services. People are creating livelihoods in the economy of the future. Um, So I think that's where, and part of what I'm saying to people who have wealth is, you know, take your money out of the, you know, the Wall Street stock market, put it into this new emerging vibrant local economy, which will meet your needs and build up this kind of economic resilience that we're going to need to ride out the, the coming years.
0: And while the grassroots activists of the transition movement hope for changes in public policy to promote sustainability, they look beyond
1: the bitterly divided federal government. Certainly cities and states can be major players. We could be creating state enterprise banks that invest in these new economy ventures. Uh, There are lots of locally controlled banks, and in, in the neighborhood where I live, we've gotten people to Move their bank, move their deposits to two of these local banks that are the most committed to lending to these local businesses. So it's a way that you're leveraging your insured deposits in a bank uh, in a way that helps build this new economy at the local level. Uh, As a consumer, you can have a big impact. I mean, we have a local first, you know, 110 local businesses. You spend a dollar in one of those businesses, it it circulates, it stays in the community. Spend a dollar in a business that's owned from the outside. It leaves the neighborhood. So people being aware of how they're spending consumption, banking, looking at all the ways in which they can personally leverage to support this new economy, I think, is one powerful thing. And that requires
0: an attention to detail, a willingness to think through choices rather than just default to the way things have always been done. Those are some pretty big leaps for a lot of people, especially feeling busy the way
1: many of us do yeah I mean the good news is people are kind of making it a little bit user more user friendly I think you know you want to you want to support your local economy here that you know uh, a lot of the local first groups put out directories of businesses they provide coupons or currencies that can be used within those businesses so you start to sort of root your consumption in a slightly different way and uh, um, but I you know I think Part of it is intention, is bringing an intention to this, to each of our choices that we make. It sounds like a, a potentially burdensome moral activity, but actually it can be quite joyful, the, the, the power of, of living with intention. And
0: the disadvantages of living without intention can be quite devastating.
1: Yeah. I mean, in some ways, you, you could be investing, in a, investing and consuming in a way that undermines your own economic security.
0: In recent years, Chuck Collins worked at bridge building. Between people of means and those less fortunate. He seeks to erode barriers and silos that reinforce a sense that the rich are more deserving than the poor. And he's found a surprising number of allies, sometimes among the super wealthy, who feel a moral duty to support the greater good.
1: The best way I found to sort of break those narratives, if you will, or disrupt that narrative of individual achievement, is by meeting all these um, successful business leaders, multimillionaires you know Bill Gates's dad and entrepreneurs who tell the story of their own success through the lens of how they got help so they'll say, you know yeah, I worked hard and i I brought my individual gifts to this, and I you know I, I'm not denying that as an individual it made a difference, but look at the public investments that I took advantage look at the uh, the Commonwealth of Uh, The fertile ground that we created together through public investment in research and the infrastructure for transportation and the internet and the knowledge infrastructure we built. Look at this commonwealth around us that made my own individual business and wealth creation possible. And these are people who tell their stories through that. So I find that very, very refreshing. Um, And one guy, this guy Martin Rothenberg, I remember hearing him stand up and say, you know, I grew up in a poor family that had no money. And uh, yet I went to this great school and this library that was open on the weekends. And there was this librarian who took an interest in me. And and uh, then I went to college and I got a free college tuition. Someone else paid for me to go to college. And He goes on and talks about all the things that helped him. And says, you know, I sold my company for $30 million. Don't I have some kind of responsibility to pay back a portion of that? so that some other kid out there that isn't born with a lot of advantages can have the same opportunities I have. Chuck Collins, author of Born on Third Base
0: and founder of United for a Fair Economy. Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugars. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media.
1: You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org.
0: This segment, The Common Good, is Humankind Program Number 251.
1: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio.